All right, uh, welcome to the conversation on the TYT network. Joining me now is David Pakman. He's a, a, another great progressive talk show host. Uh, does the you're going to be shocked to find out the David Pakman show, um, and he's also uh, the host of the new Spanish language series in Contexto. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, David, uh, welcome back to the Young Turks, man. How you doing? Always great to be with you, Jenk. All right, great to have you. So. Uh, David, let's talk about the news of the day a little bit. Uh, so uh, Biden made a number of his picks, like Janet Yellen, a Treasury Secretary. People are mixed on some progressives like it, uh, but Wall Street loves it, so that's kind of an interesting um, new paradigm. I didn't expect. Um, and then you've got uh, more hawkish picks uh, when it comes to uh, Secretary of State uh, and some of his national security apparatus. So overall, as a progressive, what do you make of the cabinet picks so far? So first of all, completely unsurprising in every way. Joe Biden picking people that are more or less in line with the, 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 the guy he's been on the campaign trail, the guy he mostly was as vice president to Barack Obama. The Yellen pick is interesting as you're pointing out, there are progressives that like it and progressives that, that are not so big on it. I mean, first of all, you have to expect that your treasury secretary, especially as a democratic president is going to be somebody who believes that monetary policy is the way that, that you get things done. I can't imagine she will stand in the way of anything Joe Biden would try to do if he gets the ability to do it. But completely unsurprising and, and pretty uncontroversial in every way. And so far it's, I mean, listen, if your standard is, We've got to return to something a little more normal. We need people with experience so that we can stop being a global laughing stock and rebuild some of these relationships. These are the people you pick. If you thought wrongly that Joe Biden was a socialist, you're going to be surprised <laughs> that these none of these people are socialists, right? So, so I mean, I think just completely unsurprising in every way so far. Yeah. So, David, given that, how do you think the next four years plays out? Um, because my guess is that Biden is who we thought he was, right? He's a moderate to conservative Democrat. He's certainly not going to go for anything big. Um, but you know, his infrastructure slash um, um, environmental bill, it's not that bad. It's $2 trillion of infrastructure spending that gets us to a much more sustainable environment. So does he go for stuff like that? Does he? At a minimum, go for the public option. And when I say go for it, I mean make a real effort, not like a half hearted effort. Oh, Mitch McConnell vetoed it. What can I do? I guess it's over. Let's just go back to giving more tax cuts to the rich. So I genuinely don't know. <laughs> That's why I'm, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I, I don't know, but I think that the, this, this idea of the effort, you know, one of the things that very often we hear from some of our brothers and sisters on the left is he or she didn't try hard enough. And then when pressed about what exactly that means, it's not always totally clear. I think if Biden doesn't get the Senate, right, depending on what happens with these two races in Georgia, I don't understand how you get tax reform done as Joe Biden described in his, you know, in his policy platform when he was candidate Biden. I don't see how he does public option and possibly reduce the Medicare 
by. And I, I just don't think you 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 do it. I just don't think it happens. And I think it's regardless of how much you try. On the other hand, the list of things he can do by executive order, and there's a lot that has to be undone from Donald Trump's last four years. I think it's substantial. And so what I'm in terms of whether he tries, I think it'll be more interesting to look at. Does he do everything by executive order that he could do? Because if he doesn't do those things, that's where I think you can more credibly say he didn't he didn't really want to do it or he didn't put in the effort. So David, my number one problem with the Democrats is that they think trying just means, well, I introduced a bill and then when they said no, I went home. So I'm not in the camp of of folks who are unrealistic and say, well, just get it done. Okay, well, that doesn't mean anything. The question is how, how do you get it done? Uh, but that's where Democrats stop and go, well, there's nothing we can do. No, I, I think that there's a lot they can do. So, for, But most of it is rhetorical and a matter of politics. And so the Republicans do play that politics and the Democrats don't. So what do I mean by that? So let's take an easy one, like $15 minimum wage. Now, theoretically, if they had a Democratic Senate, that would pass on day one. But even then, I don't actually believe that. Uh, but but theoretically, that's what they claimed, right? So now, with the, if you have a Republican Senate, they're going to say no, and then you'll get to find out who is Joe Biden. Because if what I would do is I would then pound Mitch McConnell and the Republicans into submission. How we know for absolute fact, because of ballot measures that passed in Florida, Arkansas, and Missouri, that the whole country wants $15 minimum wage. And in overwhelming numbers, it passes by two thirds almost every time. So what do you do? You go and you make a giant platform around that and you pressure the Republican senators until they get a sense that the poll numbers are dipping so much they're gonna lose or they're gonna pass $15 minimum wage. As I explain that, David, is there any chance that a Biden team would ever do anything like that? There's definitely a chance it's going to depend who the economic advisors are. But I think that where the, the, the other side to that is you can almost always get something done if you're willing to give something up. And if we learned anything, I mean, look at Mitt Romney and Kasich. 36 hours after election day, going back to the same tired tropes of we've got to keep the deficit down. Mitt Romney wants to prevent expansion, you know, Medicare for all. And John Kasich says, don't let yourselves be too influenced by the left of the party. All of these supposed anti Trump Republicans for the last four years, they're immediately going back to their intractable politics and you know despicable obstruction. So you also have to consider what do you have to give up to them in order to force them on board. If you have the benefit like you're pointing out on minimum wage of an increasingly popular policy that even pseudo red states like Florida are now supporting. I think you're right that that falls under the easy column. I think the tax reform and healthcare are much tougher hills to climb if you don't have the Senate. Yeah, as we talk this through, David, it becomes exceedingly clear to me. Biden is not going to rhetorically fight Republicans. He's going to, other than executive orders, he's going to surrender on everything. And so that's gonna lead to a toxic situation in 2024, let alone 2022. So last question on all that, how quickly do you think progressives should turn around and and start fighting the Biden administration? Because of course, Washington says don't ever, ever, ever. If he just kisses ass enough, he'll he'll listen to you. I think that's a foolish non-political argument. 
uh, it's a compliance argument. But but there is a legitimate question about hey, you know, this is a new administration and we just got rid of the monster. Let's can you know how let's give Biden a chance. What does it mean to give Biden a chance? I think it's you. You start immediate. I mean, you start now. You start now critiquing cabinet picks. It does, you don't wait. And the election's over. Biden is going to be the president. So there's no more. If anybody was calculating about, I really want to get rid of Trump, but I also want to criticize Joe Biden, and I don't know what to do. If anybody was in that position, that's over because Joe Biden is going to be president. There's a list of supposed day one executive orders. Does he do it or not? We're going to know that. On day one, the first hundred days, there are priorities that they've outlined for the first hundred days. You you start holding him to it right away. I don't see any reason whatsoever to wait, Jenk. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the media will yell at us in unison, but we're used to that. Um, so, uh, David, tell me about in in contexto. Um, so, a lot of people might not know uh, that you're originally from Argentina, right? That's absolutely correct. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm just saying that that's that they might be surprised that you're leading a Spanish show. So, tell us what it is and what you guys are doing with it. Yeah. So basically, for years, I get emails from people who say, "David, listen, my I, I'm a first generation first generation born in the U.S. My parents they want." Progressive political commentary, their English is not at a level where they can really take in the David Pakman show, the Young Turks, etc. You should really look at doing the David Pakman show in Spanish. Opportunity didn't present itself until it did. So I'm doing a half hour show. It's basically a once a week Spanish version of the David Pakman show. It's progressive political talk in Spanish. This is not really being done in this way at all. It's on the Estrella network. It's also available online. And the idea is, listen, the Latino vote, we saw what happened in Florida. Pennsylvania, Arizona, on both sides of this, the Latino vote is so important to American politics. Some of the states that are starting to become purple states, possibly blue states, it could come down to the Latino vote. So if I speak Spanish, why am I not speaking to that audience? It's just a, it's a must do. And so we're doing it. And so I do my English show and I do my Spanish show. And it's super exciting to be doing something to a totally different audience. Yeah, can we do it in Spanish? Si se puede. It's only Spanish I know. <laughs> I'm also bilingual. I was thinking of doing a show in Turkish and then realized three people would watch it. Okay, so <laughs> last thing. Speaking of that, David, Biden did not do nearly as well with Latinos as expected. What's your sense of what went wrong? So I think a couple different things happened in among the Latino vote is not one thing. It's it's dozens of communities. Most of them are quite liberal, progressive, leftist. In particular, Cuban Americans and some sometimes Venezuelan Americans, because of a very reflexive anti-Castro, anti-Chavez, anti-Maduro thing, like the. Attacks on socialism that they hear from Republicans, even if there's nothing in common between Joe Biden and those other people that I mentioned. So I think in Florida, that was a factor. I also think that just by sheer distraction, Trump didn't talk about the wall and Mexican rapists and criminals as much in the last six months as he did in 2016. It wasn't because he's now enlightened on that issue, it's just he was distracted with. Uh, coronavirus, 
having coronavirus himself, running this campaign in a very different scenario. And I think that the absence of some of that stuff may have also helped him a couple points. But in the end, I don't think we should go crazy because his support among Latino voters was still within the historical range for Republicans over the last 20 years. But it did it did certainly go up from four years ago. All right, you're gonna get that in Contexo and on the David Pakman Show. Thank you so much, David, appreciate it. Always great to be with you. All right, back on the conversation. Unfortunately, today we have another story of a police shooting of two, I was gonna say black men, but they're really kids, 16 and 18 years old, Angelo Crooms and Sincere Prince. They're both dead and did they need to be shot? Well, it's, I believe it's indisputable that they didn't. We're gonna talk about it, but first I wanna show you the video. This is about a minute long. First, you'll see the police following them because they think it's a stolen car. Why do they think it's a stolen car? The police have not clarified yet, other than the fact that there were black folks driving it. Was it stolen? No, it was Kroom's girlfriend's car. And they just left their house, they're having a perfectly normal drive. They get pulled over and then when they start to turn around is when the police panic, you'll see it. But I want you to pay attention to the very, very end of the video as the car makes the turn and the police continue to shoot. Let's watch. This part of the video doesn't have audio, you'll hear audio later. This is from one of the police officer's cars. You see another police officer's car there in so-called pursuit, right? And then you will see Crooms and Pierce's car right there, the gray car. And then they're gonna pull into a driveway. Now you're about to get the audio from the police cam in a second. And then they cut off the cam and of course others are asking, for them not to cut it off. Stop the vehicle. Stop the vehicle. Stop the vehicle. Stop. 1033. Stop the vehicle, goddammit. Stop. Stop. Shut fire. Shut fire. How about you get. Move, move, you don't have to murder the people in the car. All right, let me bring in an expert here. Charles Coleman Jr. is a civil rights attorney and a social justice advocate. Charles, unfortunately, we've seen like these scenes like this play out all across America far too often. And as you well know, it's not because this didn't happen all the time before. We just have video of it now more often. So what has been the reaction of the Florida Sheriff's Office and, and do you think it's been sufficient? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Jake. I appreciate it. The reaction of the sheriff's office has basically been to put these officers on paid vacation. They are on administrative leave with pay pending the outcome of the investigation, which I often find as a civil rights attorney to be extremely problematic, especially when you're talking about police violence, which has resulted in death. I don't understand why we are paying police officers with tax dollars to sit at home and be paid when there's evidence that clearly shows that there were alternative courses of action which could have been taken in order to avoid these officers ultimately committing you know, murder on camera. Yeah, so there's a number of problems there. Number one, it reminded me a little bit of the Tamir Rice situation. So that's the 12 year old kid in Cleveland, he had a toy gun as almost all 12 year old kids do. 
and uh, and he was in a park. Cops pull up off the curb. They get onto the curb, onto the grass. They drive right up to him and shoot him within two seconds without asking any questions. And by the way, I'm not. Right. It's not hyperbole. They shot him within two seconds flat. So. There was a thousand things they could have done not to shoot the 12 year old kid. And in this case, there was a thousand things he could have, you could have just moved aside. And so even if the car is stolen, what is it a better remedy to kill the two people inside? Or is it a better remedy to continue to follow them? I mean, I remember when we had a celebrity, now in that case, he was also African American, but OJ Simpson, we had a slow speed chase for hours and hours and hours, right? But it's normal, poor, middle class folks, especially African Americans. In this context, shoot. Second, the car already swerved away from the police officer at the end of the video. It's super clear. Uh, they don't release right. the rest of the footage, and then they say, "Oh, we had to kill him." It really right. didn't and, look and that and way, did it, Charles? You, it, it did not. It certainly doesn't appear that way from you know a first glance look at this video, and I've reviewed it several times. Here's the thing, though. What we are talking about and what this sheriff's office would have to establish in terms of being able to in any way, shape or form justify this shooting would be that this car was somehow threatening the lives in, in an imminent fashion of either of those two officers or some other individuals who are on the street. And there's nothing that shows that. And so what we are having a larger conversation here, I mean, of course, you've already illuminated the fact that there were clearly some alternative courses of action which did not involve shooting into that car, which could have been taken. But I think that on a larger level, this really speaks to the toxic nature of police culture in America that is consistent with over policing in black and brown communities and also has weaponized blackness in middle class and poor neighborhoods. And that's a real problem and I think that we have at this point in our nation a very important conversation to have with the current administration, given what we where we are politically and everything that has just happened about what is going to be done to finally address toxic police culture in America. Yeah, and the answer is likely nothing, to be honest, and it's infuriating. So yeah, in that case, everyone in America, even the most right-wing person watching this knows that if those are Two white people in Beverly Hills. There's no way the cops assume they stole the car and then murder them based on that assumption. Right. There's no way. Everybody knows it. There's at a minimum different rules that even the right wing can agree to between the rich and the poor and how police treat them. And then obviously in the case of it, there's there's racial differences here. It's super obvious. So anyway, but, but, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know. I, I agree with you, but I also want to sort of go back to the first question that you asked because I think that the point in the in the difference is not just necessarily how they handled it. The point in the difference is also the level of accountability. And I think that the two are incredibly related. When you ask the question about, well, how did the sheriff's office in Florida respond? I think that's part and parcel of a huge issue as to why we are where we are in terms of police culture. When it comes to the violation of black bodies by police and law enforcement in America, there is no accountability. We've seen it time and time again. We've seen it over and over again. The system as it is between qualified immunity and other functions that are designed to protect police officers when they take these sorts of actions does not hold officers accountable in the same way as when officers 
are violent and exude violence among members of other communities. And so I think that that's a huge part of why we're having this conversation about the extreme difference between actions in one community versus actions in another community. 100%. So but speaking of accountability, Charles, you heard my tone of pessimism there as we were talking about what's gonna get done about toxic police culture. I couldn't agree more with how you framed it. I think the culture is the number one problem. I think it's absolutely toxic and we should call it that. Um, but it, how encouraged or discouraged are you about what the Biden administration might do to address that? That's a great question, Jang. And I think that the real answer is it depends on what Biden campaign shows up or what Biden shows up. Are we gonna get Joe Biden who signed the 94 crime bill? Or are we gonna get Joe Biden who campaigned in 2020 and said, I'm a different person, I've learned from my mistakes and this is not who I wanna be. I also think that obviously his vice president Kamala Harris has a huge task in front of her in terms of dispelling some of the conversation around who she is as a former prosecutor. I'm a former prosecutor and I had my own reservations about Kamala Harris as a VP and so, Watching this administration navigate the the issue of criminal justice is going to be critical because we're going to end up in a situation sooner than later where we're having another conversation about them and their records. So they have had they have got to take this seriously, just in terms of setting the tone, right? Like Joe Biden wasn't someone who wanted to have a conversation about qualified immunity during the campaign. He's gonna have to address that at some point if he wants to be taken seriously on the issue of criminal justice reform. And Kamala Harris as well, especially being that she is a former prosecutor. So, you know, my answer to you is at this point, I'm very skeptical because I don't know who which which versions of these people are gonna show up. Because we've seen, if we're being fair and we're looking at their records, we've seen a great level of disparity from both of them on the issue of criminal justice reform. And now is their opportunity to show us who they are in 2020 and finally seem to get this right. So Charles, I think you made a great point there. Honestly, I hadn't thought about it that way. That especially given, I'll tell you my opinion. I don't think Barack Obama did nearly enough on criminal justice reform in his eight he years. Didn't. And so given that, given that Kamala Harris is almost certainly gonna run for president again, and given that there will be more pressure on her to deliver on this issue, Perhaps that is a little bit of ray of hope that that there'll be it not that we're you know hoping for them to do the right thing of their own accord, but that there'll be sufficient political pressure for someone like Kamala Harris to then push Joe Biden to take action in this direction. Otherwise, when in a Democratic primary, whether it's in 2024 or 2028, you would imagine that she would definitely be held to account on that, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there is a real conversation that is going to have to light a fire under Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, but more so Kamala Harris, because you know the 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 common thought is that Joe Biden is not likely to do two terms in office, which then of course puts her directly in line. Of course, she will be primary, but that cycle will start literally the day after midterms. So you're talking about 2022. From the start of January 20th in 2020 to you know the day after midterms in 2022, when people are going to start throwing their names in the hat for the Democratic primary, she has that small of a window 
to actually do something about criminal justice reform that's going to speak in large part to communities of color, to black people in America. And that is a big deal, that is a tight window and it's going to require very intentional action. There certainly should be the motivation of it in terms of wanting to maintain a presumable head start over the rest of the field. But the question is, how is she gonna use it? And whether she is going to be able to to lean on Joe Biden in a way that's going to be meaningful and allow him to actually, you know, or push him to actually make some of the changes that need to be made that they can enact from from their seats in Washington. Because I do want to be clear that all police reform is not going to come from the federal government. It's not going to come from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and I get that. But the bully pulpit, the rhetoric, all of that's very strong and important, and it has to come from somewhere. So if we are going to take you seriously as a candidate, we need to hear that you're actively having this conversation, not just when you're looking for votes. That's a million percent right. And it could start with something as simple as clarifying language, just like Charles said. Call it toxic police culture, that's exactly what it is. And it brings attention to the issue in in the right ways. We'll see if they have the courage to do that. We're gonna find out together. All right, Charles, we're out of time, but I'm gonna ask you one more question anyway. (laughs) So uh, as we see, unfortunately, Crooms and Pierce gunned down in Florida, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse just got out on $2 million bail, partly put up uh, by his fans, God help us. Uh, partly put up by Ricky Schroeder and my pillow guy. Um, yeah. So as you see that, then you see Cynthia Green who who took care of uh, um, sincere Pierce that was his and and she was saying, please don't shoot my baby uh, as all of this went down. Uh, she's now doing a I think she's cooking to try to raise money for the funeral. Um, how do you how do we deal with that disparity in this country? I think that you, we have to have a very honest conversation about what it means um, to be in this country and what America is. You know, I, I, I have said this before to great controversy, but in large part, America is a lie. America is a lie in as much as we would like to convince ourselves that we all have access to the American dream and and this promise of better lives in ways that we simply do not. And there are people who are content to allow that to remain the case, as you see in terms of the disparity in terms of how this is being dealt with. I can't tell you as my in my career as a former prosecutor, the number of cases that were far, far less serious than Kyle Rittenhouse, where people received absolutely no bail whatsoever and were remanded. And yet and still, even at a high bail, because he was considered to be a high flight risk of $2 million, this man has celebrities who have never met him, who have come to his aid. He is, you know, and, and that is, it speaks to a culture in America that is intended to shut other people out. It speaks to a culture in America that is intended to keep these, these, these disparities consistent and to maintain them. And I think that, you know, for those people who are still in denial, who want to act as though we are further along than we are as a country in terms of where we would like to be or where we position ourselves or how we posture ourselves. I can think of no better example in contemporary history than what you just mentioned in terms of Kyle Rittenhouse and this bail situation as evidence of a disparity that we are simply not. We are lying to ourselves on a global scale and everybody can see it besides us. And so that's the only way that I can really make sense of it. We have to be honest about the fact that this is as American as America gets. 
not the ideal of, of America, but the reality. And I think that we have to really dig into that and, 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 and be authentic in that conversation because it says a lot in terms of what those differences are, but it's also extremely clear. So, you know, that's that's where I am. I know we're out of town, but I really do appreciate the question. Yeah, no, no problem. And and look, I actually don't think it's that hard to square what you're saying. So, uh, we believe in the ideals of America, and we're realistic enough to know that we're not there yet. And so, we want to push to get there, so that we could have the America we all believe in, and so that it's not a lie. Uh, Absolutely. And and that just just shouldn't be too hard to comprehend, and it shouldn't be too much to ask for. So, um, Charles Coleman Jr., thank you so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoyed having you.